Uh, as we come to God's Word this morning, we are in the uh, Psalms. We've been walking through the Psalms since January, doing a series here, doing a couple few dozen Psalms. We are reaching the end of this series. We're in Psalm 110 this morning. We'll do a couple more, and as we enter into the fall ministry, we'll move into some new things. Uh, but we are in Psalm 110 this morning, which may be the most purely um, messianic, prophetical psalm in the Psalter. So let us then read... God's Word, Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter to rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and He will not change His mind. You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore He will lift up His head. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning to You and to Your Word, knowing that it lives and is true, and that You speak, and so we come to listen. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts that are open and lives that change under the hearing of Your Word and its power. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 110 doesn't have a clear historical context the way a lot of the other psalms do. Whether written by David or some of the other guys, it, sometimes it is, it is easy to see the context. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, we get Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. and Some of them are when he's on the run from Saul and he's hiding in the wilderness and we get some of those psalms where he's depressed and hard-pressed. And There's so many that the historical context is very clear to see, but when you calm come to Psalm 110, it's really, there's really no historical context given uh, in, in any way. And as you read it, it doesn't seem to fit in any real historical context. It appears at face value to be the most messianic, purely prophetical psalm in the Psalter uh, that is speaking of the coming Messiah. One of the reasons I believe that that is true is that this psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And verse 1 of this psalm is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. And also the verse on uh, that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, frequently quoted in the New Testament. And so the New Testament, in seeking to establish Christ as Messiah King, as the priest and Savior, goes to this psalm again and again. More than any other psalm or any other text. Jesus is the first one to make reference to this psalm. He does it. He brings it up. He's talking with the Pharisees. They're often having these interchanges. And Jesus brings up this psalm. He initiates and He says, hey, you guys, what do you guys think about the Messiah? Whose son is He going to be? And for the Pharisees, this was a no-brainer. Right? Every Jewish schoolboy could answer this question. 
Right? And so they answer Jesus and they tell Him, He will be the Son of David. Everybody knows the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah will be a, a king and a son in the line of David. But then Jesus takes them, He takes their answer, and He doesn't dispute it. This is one the Pharisees got right. They didn't get a lot of them right, but they got that one right. And Jesus takes their answer, and He takes them to this psalm to expand and stretch their understanding of who Messiah would be. Right? He takes them here. Because Jesus spent a lot of His time, not only with the Pharisees, but with His own disciples, trying to stretch their understanding of who Messiah was going to be. Because the, the, the Jewish culture at that time, the Jewish people at that time, had a pretty fixed notion of who and what Messiah would be. Right? That he would be a political uh, king, son of David, a king who would come, he would be a warrior king, and he would overthrow the oppressors of Israel and establish Israel again as a nation among nations. And so they had a very narrow, specific idea of what Messiah would be. And Jesus spent a lot of his time uh, talking to his disciples about the Son of Man, another messianic title from the Old Testament, and trying to infuse into their understanding of Messiah a deeper, broader, richer, more infinite understanding of who this guy was going to be. Jesus tells him at one point in the middle of his ministry that the Messiah, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of his enemies and go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And then rise again. And it takes him a long time. I don't think they get it till he actually rises again. As Jesus is trying to expand in their understanding who the Messiah would be and what he would actually do and accomplish in defeating enemies ultimate to Israel, their sin. So through the centuries, they had one idea. Jesus is spending His career redefining the identity and mission of the Messiah. And He does it using Psalm 110. Whose son is the Messiah going to be? And so in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 45, it says this, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is He going to be? And they said to Jesus, Duh. Well, I imagine they said something like that. There probably was a tone that they had. The son of David, obviously. And then Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, calls him the Messiah, Lord? Saying, verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Messiah King, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then, he says, if David calls him Lord, this is his, you know, pushing them on their understanding. If David calls his son Lord, how is it that he can be his son? Right? At the very least, David is his son's equal. He never calls Rehoboam or Solomon my Lord. Right? He never calls Absalom my Lord. He doesn't call his children or his children's children Lord. Right? So there's an enigma in the whole thing, a mystery in the whole thing. How is it that David speaking to the Messiah who would be a son of David, call Him my Lord. The disciples take Jesus' lead. That the Messiah is going to be one who is greater than David. Greater even in the sense of the kingship of Israel. He wouldn't be just a king of Israel because He would be greater than the greatest king that Israel ever had. 
And the disciples pick this up and Jesus infuses it into their their thinking. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, it becomes the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Proclaiming the unique supremacy of Jesus Christ as Messiah, Lord, and King. Hebrews verses chapter 1, and you know the whole book of Hebrews uh, addresses how the New Testament and the ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfill all the promises, types, and hopes of the Old Testament. And so the book of Hebrews opens with this grand introduction of the Son, Jesus, and then uses this text to talk about who He is. And so in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, like David in Psalm 110, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom He has created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, we're talking about Jesus, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As Psalm 110 proclaims, He says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 13, he goes on, and and we see this is the context of the writer of Hebrews. As he goes on, he quotes Psalm 110 a few verses later and says, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, Jesus is greater than David, who calls him my Lord. He is greater than the angels in heaven, who serve God in His very presence, in their holiness, who sing day and night of His holiness, none of them ever sat at the Father's right hand. None of the 24 elders who sit in the presence of God sit at His right hand. No, there is one who is greater than the angels, greater than David, greater than the 24 elders who sit there. The Son of David is also The writer of Hebrews tells us, the Son of God. He has spoken to us in these last days in His Son. And this is what Romans 1 tells us as Paul opens the book of Romans and introduces the good systematic theology of the life and work of Christ. And he says, concerning His Son, God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, yes, a son of David, but He was also declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not only David's Lord, but our Lord. He reigns as King at the right hand of God. And so Psalm 110 in these first few verses are speaking of the resurrection and enthronement of Christ at the right hand of the Father and the growth in the expansion of His kingdom as the reigning Son of God. They're speaking of the resurrection, which is why the New Testament quotes it so often. (laughs) Following the resurrection to explain who Jesus is and what He has done. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to quote extensively there again, uh, because if we want to understand the Old Testament, I believe anywhere the New Testament speaks and interprets and tells us what's going on in the Old Testament, you shouldn't start in the Old and go forward. You should start with what Jesus said and then read the psalm in light of what Jesus understood. Read it in light of what Peter understood. And so Peter, in speaking of the resurrection, this is, this is the day of 
Pentecost. This is a day of, of a, an outpouring of God's Spirit on His people, and there is uh, speaking in tongues or miraculous signs or people being converted, and Peter speaks. And in explaining what is going on, at that moment, the outpouring of the Spirit, the gathering of a church in Christ among the Jews, explaining what's going on, Peter quotes Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to explain it to him. He says, Psalm 16, You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. I can tell you with confidence, David wrote that psalm and many would think, well, is David talking about himself or somebody else? Peter says, I tell you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. It's not about him. He saw the grave and corruption. He died and was buried, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that He would set one of His descendants on His throne. And so the promise of God to David that one day I will place one of your sons on the throne and His kingdom will be established forever. And what Peter is saying, he looked forward and he foresaw and he spoke about, what was he talking about? He was talking about the resurrection of Christ. That he would not be abandoned to Hades, that he would rise. That his flesh would not be, see corruption, but that he would ascend and he would sit at the right hand of the Father. David did not ascend into the heavens. It's not about David. But David himself says, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Right? It's the resurrection of Christ that fulfills the promise to David that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. And the resurrection and the enthronement of Christ in the most powerful seat in the universe at the right hand of the Father, co-equal in power, glory, and divinity that He has ascended and fulfilled all the hopes and desires presented in the Old Testament Scriptures. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Describes the reign of Christ and the advance of His kingdom. He sits at the right hand. I'll make your enemies your footstool. And the Lord, He says, sends forth His, from Zion His mighty scepter. A symbol of power. A symbol of authority. That when Jesus sits at the right hand, He says, from then I will send forth this mighty power. Jesus says, what, is, what does He say at the, uh, you know, the Great Commission as He sends His church out? Is He waiting for the day when He will... That he will get power and be able to reign as king? Is he, is he waiting for the day? Now his proclamation is, I'm sending you, why? Because all authority on heaven and in earth has been given to me already. I stand as the one who will sit at the right hand. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You go under the auspices of the seated one. Go and make disciples this... This authority, Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, it says this, that God seated Him, Jesus, at His right hand. Psalm 110. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Already done. The scepter goes out from Zion, mighty that you may rule in the midst of your enemies. And that means He reigns and rules now in the midst of His enemies. The world is still full of rebellion. The world is still full of those who reject Christ and His Lordship. 
And He reigns still in His church, gathering His people, reigning on the earth in the lives of His people, and His kingdom is advancing even against the very gates of hell. And Jesus reigns in the midst of His enemies, converting some of them to His friends. When you were His enemies, Christ died for you. And He won you and He draws you to Himself and He defeats and reigns in the midst of His enemies. Some of them He converts to friends and some we see at the end of this psalm will be judged. And we see in verse 3, in my opinion, the gathering of the church as Jesus sits at the right hand and we know it is the resurrection. And then in verse 3, He says, your people will offer themselves willingly on your day of power. He will gather a church. He will gather a people who are made willing A people who love to do the will of God. Who love to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Whose wills have been converted and bent to His own. Not my will, but Your will be done. O Lord, that He gathers a people that are His very own for the glory of His name under His power. Born again, even as it says, if we're gathered in holy garments, where do we get these robes of righteousness? And you're born from the womb of the morning. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And your youth is renewed and restored as we are restored in the image of Christ. The image of one who is the exact image and representation of God. He gathers His church. And so where do we get these holy garments? That He says that we will be a people offering ourselves willing on that day in holy garments. Robes of righteousness. Well, verse 4 tells us, doesn't it? The Lord Yahweh has sworn, and He will not change His mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek. You know, this guy is a mystery. It's a fascinating thing. It really is, as you see the way this, God uses it in, in the Word. Because the, word, the name Melchizedek shows up three times in three places. Once in Genesis, once in Psalm 110, and then in the book of Hebrews, he actually uses it eight times. So Hebrews makes much of it. This guy who shows up in like two verses in the Bible. Because in Genesis 18, we see this guy Melchizedek show up. David has just won a mighty victory. He has taken the spoils and he's on his way home and he bumps into Melchizedek. King of Salem, king of peace, king of righteousness. And David tithes a tenth of all his plunder to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses him as his greater. And then you don't hear anything about him for a thousand years. Where did he come from? A priest of the Most High God. Shows up in David's time to bless him and take his tithe. And then he came out of nowhere. And then he disappeared. We don't hear about him again. A thousand years later, Psalm 110 shows up. A very prophetic messianic psalm where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and to this one He says, I have sworn and I will not change my mind. You are the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What do we know about the order of Melchizedek? Very little. No, nothing. Um, And then for so a thousand years later it shows up in Psalm 110 and a thousand years later it shows up in the book of, of Hebrews. So once every millennia We'll talk about Melchizedek, right? But it shows up in Hebrews to say that Jesus is a 
a priest not in the order of Aaron, but in this, but in another, he's a priest of a whole another order. It's an order of a priest that in a sense, in the way Hebrews talks about it, that Melchizedek had no beginning and no end. We don't know where he came from, we don't know where he went. Right? It's this order, and it says that Jesus is a priest in this order that, that has no beginning and no end. He's a priest forever in this order of Melchizedek. And then you read Hebrews that makes much about this priest who is also the sacrifice, and he offers his sacrifice once for sin, and then sits down waiting for his enemies. And so he is this eternal priest. The forever priest. Offering a forever sacrifice. Hebrews 5, verses 9 and 10, it says this, being made perfect. He became the source of an eternal salvation for all who would obey Him. Being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. When was He appointed? Psalm 110. Hebrews 10 Verses 12 and 13, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins as a high priest of this eternal order, and He offers Himself as that very sacrifice in the shedding of His own blood, as He offers for all time this sacrifice for sins, He sits down at the right hand of the Father, reigning in power and glory, and waiting for what? Till His enemies should be made His footstool. The forever priest, the forever sacrifice, the forever king in the line of David who saves us from our sin and offers us forgiveness. And Yahweh has sworn, and He will not change His mind, verse 4 tells us, about this priest, about His ministry and His sacrifice, about His intercession, about what He has accomplished once and for all on our behalf. He has sworn and He will not change His mind. Our salvation is secure. We are saved forever by a forever priest. It is perfect and irrevocable. But the priest king, having provided a perfect salvation and sitting at the right hand of the Father and all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto Him as He reigns as David's eternal Son on that throne which is above every throne. And He waits for the fullness of time when all of His enemies will be made His footstool. He waits. Verses 5-7, to seven, we read that He doesn't just wait, that the day is coming when He will return again. The Lord is at your right hand and He will shatter kings on the earth on the day of His wrath. The Bible has much to say. Jesus has much to say about that day. On the day of His wrath, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. And then He will refresh Himself. He will drink from the brook on the way and lift His head in victory. He is also the coming King. The coming Judge that will one day arise in His wrath. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. That day, He says, it will be a judgment among the nations. That the earth will be filled with corpses. In other words, that His enemies will perish. And that image of judgment and justice there is 
shocking in some ways. We don't talk, it's not politically correct to say things like that. But the Bible does say them. And it says them quite clearly that uses a picture of battle. And that's the image there, that when the battle is done, there are casualties. But the Scripture says also so clearly that God so loved the world. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish on that day. He has done the work. He has sent His Son, this priest forever, who has made the perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. And if we will put our trust in Him, put our hope in Him, bow the knee to Christ and follow Him, if we would be those who are willing on that day, and as we come to apply this whole text, that's the first question. When the priest king arises in power and in judgment, will he find us to be, will he find you to be, one who was willing on his day of power? One who freely, freely offered yourself to him and bowed the knee to serve and to follow him? Or will he find you yet a rebel, resisting his power and his lordship? The world is still full of enemies who refuse to honor him as God who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. My friends, will you offer yourself freely to Him? Offer yourself to Him this morning. Bow the knee to this One who so freely calls in His love that we should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you've never done that, today is a good day. And if you do that, tell somebody. Tell me or a Sunday school teacher or an elder. Another application though, not only if you have never done that and bowed the knee to King Jesus, but there are many of us in here who claim that we have. That that is a decision that we have entered into. That we have called ourselves His servants on the earth. And so, this psalm then becomes a question of lordship. We have this clear picture of a reigning king. Jesus says at one point, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. So my question for us this morning is, do we, are we doing what He says? Are we a willing people that when His kingdom is advancing in the midst of His enemies, against the very gates of hell, as He is gathering people and, is, and gathering a church, and the church is doing the work that He calls of establishing His kingdom in the lives of our children and, and in our lives as we come into full discipleship, are we offering ourselves willingly to the service of Christ? In His church. Throughout there again, we enter a new ministry year in the life and the rhythm of our church in the next few weeks. We're looking for willing people to do a number of things. And to examine how the Lord might be calling you to be the one that says, here am I, send me. And finally, as we apply this, I would give just one more picture, not only to, that we're called to bow the knee, and if we have, we're called to be willing servants, not under compulsion, but willingly entering into the work of His kingdom. But the third thing I would pull out of this to remind us is to say that we live in a period of waiting. Jesus is waiting. He sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting until His enemies should be made His footstool, which says a couple things. One, that His enemies are still out there. Right? That we live in a world that is not yet fully subdued. 
We live in a world, we live in a situation, my friends, we are in that all, you've heard us say it before, the theologians talk about in the already and the not yet. Right? Jesus is already raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. Already, all power on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Already, Jesus is King, reigning in the midst of His enemies. But, He has not yet subdued all of His enemies. And, and, and it marches on. The kingdom advances. I will build my kingdom against the gates of hell and gather a people into my midst. And this goes on and we're in this already but not yet. And so we're in this waiting. Groaning. Hebrews 2.8 says, having put everything in subjection under His feet. And now putting everything in subjection under His feet, He left nothing outside of His control. He is above every power, principality, dominion, he, all authority in heaven and earth. Nothing is left that Jesus is not king over. And yet at present, we don't yet see everything brought to that subjection. But my friends, that day is coming. And that's where this psalm ends. We live in this moment. And so we groan, as Roman 8 says, we groan like the Spirit groans, longing for His return. And the virtues of waiting, the virtues of this longing are patience. Patience in the midst of frustrating elections. I don't know if it's been frustrating to you or not, but frustrating in the midst of a, of a, a world that is in chaos. And I do believe part of that picture that has been painted is true. And that out there, there is so much going on at home and abroad. And we wait and we long. And we have to live in patience and long-suffering and endurance. How often are these listed as the fruits of the Spirit for God's people? Patience and long-suffering while His enemies are brought to heal. We wait for the full assertion of Christ's power. We are the willing servants of an advancing kingdom. Proclaiming a gospel that saves and is the power to change lives and to bring people into the willing number of His servants. Calling to obedience. Fighting the good fight. Following Jesus. And the most important reality in the mind and in the life of a follower of Christ is just that. That He is seated and He is reigning. That all authority and power is His. And that He is returning. And that day is coming. And may we be found faithful. Pray with me. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true. More than that, we thank You for the Christ who is presented here to the eyes of our faith. To this reigning King in power and authority that You have acted once and for all in Him, as King, as Priest, as Savior, as Judge. Oh my God, may we bow our knees and be made willing in this Your day of power that we would serve You with all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of our souls, all of our strength, that we would love, worship, and serve You as Your willing, joyful people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.